This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Over the years, there have been a lot of groups that have come to Australia to perform. Did you see the Beatles when they came? What about Joan Armour Trading or Coming Again, A Kiss? There is a group performance at the crux of Laura Bloom's book, The Woman and the Girls. Welcome, Laura. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So... Which group is it? When and where? The group is ABBA, who at that time in the 70s when I was very young, I thought were the greatest band in the world and I still think they're one of the greatest. And it's 1977, so it's a historic event. Uh, It's their first trip to Australia. And it's in inner city Sydney in a fictional place called Sandgate, which is based on pretty much Glebe, where I grew up, and I was around there in the 70s. Well, through the story, we get little glimpses of that time with miniskirts, a red velour tracksuit, and terry-toweling dressing gowns. Now, ABBA, I'm sure everybody knows that upbeat, happy songs that they do, and this is the reaction it had for most of the women and the girls. A feeling of hope and optimism reminded Libby of her own innocence and beauty. With each song, it kept building until she was wafting on a cloud of joy. That's a quote from the book. We better explain who the women are. And Libby, this is where I'd like Laura Bloom to read from her book, from page six, where she's described Libby. Libby was a planner. This was her dirty secret. Even though it was her loosey-goosey ways that everyone admired her for, of plucking a tray out of the oven and bringing it straight over to the table when visitors dropped by, or whipping up scones in minutes, it was only possible because she was so organised. You had to have a well-stocked pantry and the recipe in your head to make scones that fast, let alone be capable of mixing them up while making conversation at the same time. You had to have the beach bags packed and the picnic hamper ready to go for a spontaneous beach outing, as well as to know and to be managing how each of the children and Ben were feeling. The the term domestic goddess (laughs) is more recent. Remember, this is 1970s. This is the expectation of wives, really, isn't it? Just to be planned, to have the whole family moving smoothly. Libby does it in a beautifully kind of hippie way. You know, you also, I think it's an expectation of wives to do it in the kind of the fashion of the time, which at that time had to be sort of, oh, you know, it's, it's a kind of free-for-all, very loose and wafty. But I really wanted to write about Libby too, because she actually is that. Like that really is her art to make a home. I think there are some women, and only some, for whom it really is a kind of calling, and men too, who can just create or host that they can create a world. She does have a shining light. There's something that she really wants to do. Mm. She wants to share and create a world of warmth. I mean, I think we all know people like this. They draw people to them, but she's somehow become marooned in that because even though before she got married and had kids, she did it in share houses or she did it behind a bar. She was a bartender. Now in that nuclear family way, she's become trapped behind that front door while her husband goes out to work and she has two kids and her younger child has developmental delays which is similar to me my son has autism and so she's kind of particularly isolated with him because of course at that time in the 70s there were there were even fewer services than there are now for kids with disability 
and for people who, who care for them. So Libby has found herself, even though she has this, this really true and authentic urge to, to make warmth and make, make food and create beauty and togetherness, she is not able to do that when she's on her own all the time. This is another quote from the book, The Women and the Girls. This is Libby. Her organisational skills seemed to turn her husband, Ben, off. He didn't like it when she told him what to do, but he didn't like it when the kids were unhappy or there was no routine either. She was in a lose-lose proposition. So from Libby, how did she feel about one of the other mothers, Anna? Well, Anna is at first glance, a career woman. She's super fashionable. She lives in a mansion. She hand distempers the walls up on ladders. You know, she does ballet lessons. She's kind of everything that Libby isn't. In that kind of very stock way, I think that stay-at-home mums can be kind of set up against career women, even though at that time, career women were actually extremely unusual. Um, but Anna can see this, this X factor in Libby. Libby has what Anna doesn't have which is that kind of talent or that gift for homemaking. And I think also a kind of gift for authenticity that Anna, who's very much had to pass all her life, she's always had to pretend to be what she isn't because where she's from is such a shameful place to be from. Well, Anna wants to learn that from Libby, but Libby's not buying it. Libby doesn't want to be sucked into Anna's bourgeois, you know, uptight dinner parties where they're going to talk about abstract art and, you know, where Libby will just feel completely out of place. And, and actually, it is a very uptight dinner party that Anna and ends up having. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and there was another very different mother, Carol. Carol is the most vulnerable at the start of the novel. She has just emigrated with her husband and her daughter. And something really difficult has happened to her. She's, she's had a miscarriage on the way out to Australia. And she's left her mother and her community where... She, she used to be in the heart of her community back in England. So she couldn't be more vulnerable, really. And her husband, who's always be, been controlling, has now become, that's really ratcheted up a few notches so that he's actually controlling pretty much everything. I really wanted to, in his character, explore the idea of coercive control and how that can, how that can seep into everything without there being any actual what people I think even now many people would think of as abuse certainly exerting a lot of power over her Steve handsome redhead model material mm. well they each had problems with their husbands either there was too much attention or not enough attention and it was the same with sex as well either too much or not enough so what do they all decide to do after the happiness of the ABBA concert? Well, in very different ways, they all leave. Um, Carol's actually left just before. She's used the ABBA concert as an excuse. But I did want to kind of give a feeling that was there in the 70s of a kind of wildfire among women of options opening up, of consciousness being raised, of suddenly kind of looking up and thinking, hey, she's doing something that I didn't even think was possible but look, it's, it's happening. So they all do it pretty much instantly. They move into a share house together and set up house with their kids. At the start, at least, it goes swimmingly. Well, this share house is big enough for all the families and Samson the cat. They become very much a blended family. 
but with different responsibility taken on by the adults. However, the girls, now this is Libby's daughter, Anna's two daughters, and Carol's daughter, as well as you mentioned, uh, Jasper, the little brother. They seem to be happy at first, but what happens at school? Well, at school, they wind up having an awful conflict. Ashley is violent. But I think pretty much their, their kind of happy friendship has been an idealisation of their mothers almost from the start. I think a lot of women can do this. They, they sort of project their ideal of friendship and, and what maybe they would have liked to have been like onto little girls. I think probably the whole world does that. But actually little girls have, you know, strength of feeling and opinions and, and a capacity for violence equal to boys completely. And because it's so not allowed at home, it has to come out at school. So swept up into their, into their new lives and also the kind of the fantasy they have of, of, what, of what this house can be, which I think a lot of people are guilty of in the 70s in terms of communal living. But the children are very much being pushed into this and they finally lever themselves out in a kind of explosion of that they, they have a fight, which I, I remember at the time too was, was actually pretty normal. I mean, at my school at least, girls fought just as often as boys did. It was shocking and it was terrible, but it also, yeah, wasn't unheard of at all, although the mothers are all horrifically shocked by it. The teacher says that if, they, if they'd been boys, they would have been caned. So we get these differences in gender. And then, of course, there's the expectations of women and especially wives. This is what the book is really about, women not being defined by being a wife or a mother. That's one thing that they all wish for, not to be like their own mothers. No one of them thinks of the ideal. And this is a quote, a family who ate Sunday roast dinners in their carpeted home, whose mothers planned holidays and paid bills on time and never argued with their husbands about their gambling debts, let alone the other woman. So they've all had interesting parental backgrounds themselves, haven't they? And Anna particularly, that's also a class thing where she's come from pretty much the bottom of she actually grew up in Sandgate where the book is set, but she lived down near the fish markets and was extremely poor, grew up in squalor and has absolutely dedicated herself to making it up out of that, which she's done. An extraordinary thing for a woman to do, but also something that could happen then with, you know, the big changes in education for women and social changes. You think about the financial security of these women too, how much they relied on each other. For, for help, monetary help, because quite often it wasn't coming from the father. Oh, no. And, of course, right, that was at the time finally there was a single mother's pension, which absolutely made it possible in the first place. But they rely on each other for care for their kids as well because at that time there also wasn't the kind of childcare that we have at the moment. So to have a job, they've got to have, it had to be a mother or a neighbour or a friend and so they're, they're providing all those necessities for each other in order, in order for each of them to be able to actually have what we would call a full, a normal full life. A normal full life. And, well, Ben, this is uh, Libby's husband and father of Summer and Jasper, he says, I think a child needs her father. But he was never around. Even their daughter, which really surprised Libby, she said, my ambition is to get married and have babies when I grow up. 
Livy's had this daughter who pretty much is provocative and anti whatever Livy says right from the beginning. So of course her daughter would say that right when Livy's thinking, well, sod that. <laughs> sod that whole dream of what a nuclear family can be like. I'm gonna go for something different and maybe more fulfilling. And so of course her daughter takes up the opposite position. <laughs> and this time of course also brought about sexual freedom. Anna and the younger Carol are invited to a very special party and they have different experiences there. Now, what type of party was it? It was a party where single or coupled, you could come along to this party and um, get with whoever you wanted just for one night. I think of it as a bit like, you know, an old pagan festival or, you know, rite of spring where apparently, I'm not even sure if this was true, but... Um, I know in like the, the midst of Arthur where the whole village for one night could all, like a masked ball, everybody could just be with whoever they wanted to be. But of course for Anna, that's absolutely daunting. And um, she's not really up to it at all. <laughs> I, I liked Anna thought it was more like a meat market and Carol thought it was a treasure hunt for grown-ups. <laughs> and Carol, even though she has, you know, been married, for a long time and her husband is supposedly very sexy she's actually completely sexually unfulfilled she's mm. never had a great sexual experience in all that time of marriage she did at that party she certainly yes, did she certainly did <laughs> she blossomed so how important is sex in a relationship or should you have an imaginary lover so all of these issues come out of this time is the social aspect of homosexuality. One character was either told to talk to a minister, see a psychologist, or take two aspros. But the reality was he could be arrested, could lose his job, or sent to prison. The story goes on, and you really are very interested to know what is going to happen, especially when one of the women kisses one of the other husbands. Oh, and there's a suggestion that a woman could be better as a child minder than a worker. Ooh, this is all, you know, these issues that come through. The fact that it is about friendship, you know, when you said, so one of the mothers kisses one of the husbands, that would normally be the climax. That would be the climax like in a traditional narrative about women and men and women leaving men. Whereas, of course, in this book, it's, it's not at all. You know, it actually is their friendship that carries the day and, you know, it goes in a completely different direction. And the other, the other thing that, that I was really exploring throughout the whole book was all the different kinds of labour that women do that is invisible, like emotional labour, caring labour, friendship labour, which, and I like, I think of labour as a good thing, it's productive, but it's just so often ignored in favour of what, you know, men, men do or what, what is paid labour compared to unpaid labour. So I was, that's really what I wanted to explore in the novel, you know, care, care labour of all kinds. And Anna was wondering if she was doing the right thing. And here I'd like Laura Bloom to read from page 129 from her book, The Women and the Girls. Anna looked through the window at the darkening city streets. There was no script for this, no certainty. There were no milestones to measure her progress against or key performance indicators to be ticked off. For the first time in her life, she was flying blind and there was no way to predict how it would unfold. So The Women and the Girls is an entertaining read set back in Sydney 1970s about women being challenged as they try to excel as mothers and friends with or without husbands. <laughs> 
Oh, well done. Thank you very much, Laura. Thank you so much, Jan. Well, that was my author, Laura Bloom, and her book, The Woman and the Girls. Now it's David's turn with Polly Phillips. And now it's David's turn. Your best friend can be your greatest enemy. And such is the case in Polly Phillips' murder mystery, My Best Friend's Murder. So, Polly, welcome to 3CR. Thank you so much for having me. Now, leaving the murder aside for a moment, you explore a toxicity that can lie behind friendships. And in this instance, a friendship that began in childhood between Beck and Izzy. Izzy is a bit of a control freak. She's many things, isn't she? Um, I think she is a bit of a control freak, but I think probably a lot of people who are trying to um, hold down a job and bring up a young family will identify with parts of her control freak room. And she does take it to the extreme. But I think um, in order to try and sort of wear the multiple hats she does, you do need to have a, a, a level of control and planning. But Izzy's got post-it notes around the house <laughs> for when Beck comes to babysit. Yes, maybe that is one of her more extreme moments, but perhaps it speaks less to um, Izzy's control freak um, nature and more to a sort of fundamental level of um, distrust or the kind of inequality in her friendship with Beck. Would she leave the post-it notes for anyone else or does she just think that Beck is slightly incompetent? But Izzy also then is very demanding of her little daughter in terms of a set routine without any sort of tolerance for any aberration to it. This is true. I'm doing my best to defend her um, because as, as an author, I think you do love all of your characters. But yeah, I mean, Izzy is a deeply flawed individual. Um, but like, like all of us, she probably is just trying to do her best. Well, you then have Beck, uh, Izzy's best friend, so to speak, but Beck is less ambitious, almost captive to Izzy for a friendship, a need for friendship. Yes, I've had a lot of um, feedback from um, readers who, who really identify with Beck, and I think lots of us have, do find ourselves trapped in these unequal friendships that can start when we're much younger, and it, it's hard to take stock of a friendship and actually think, is this person really, um, does she really want the best for me? I think lots of people let things slide in, in historic friendships that maybe they shouldn't, and I think Beck is just so used to um, being in Izzy's shadow. You know, Izzy was the more successful, the more popular, the more beautiful, right from that when they were teenagers, and I think she's just sort of grown into that um, role. But a, a, bit, a captive is probably a good description. It is slightly Stockholm Syndrome. She has fallen in love with her captor. But Izzy can't tolerate Beck having any success. So, for example, Izzy feigns an injury during a running event to cover the fact that Beck could well best her in that uh, competition. Indeed. Or does she? I mean, I think that's the interesting thing about the dynamics between the two of them. We um, obviously, as the reader, we, we see it all from Beck's point of view. And then as the book goes on, as we see Izzy growing more and more toxic, there is an element of, um, of us that starts to um, possibly not quite distrust Beck's account, but become aware that we are seeing it from very much one person's point of view. When actually in all friendships, I think it does take two to tango. There are also a few hapless men who are, it would seem, 
um, who are being manipulated, Rich and Ed. Izzy has virtually, or so it seemed to me, entrapped Rich into marriage, potentially taking Rich away from Beck. Yes. Yes, that's definitely one reading of it. Um, but we also have to, I mean, I think the, the females are the, the dominant um, in, in the book and their relationship. But I think Rich and Ed also have to take some accountability. I think Rich um, is very much after an easy life. He's, um, he's quite easily led. I mean, as I wrote him to, to start with, I was, um, as I was writing him, I was head over heels in love with um, Rich. Um, but by the end, I, I could see his weaknesses. And I think, should he have allowed himself to be led? Should he, doesn't he have to have, um, to bear some responsibility for the choices that he, make, he makes, even if he is sort of lured in by Izzy? Then you have Ed, who is Beck's fiance, but it would seem that Izzy has interfered here as well. Well, Izzy introduced them. So her relationship with Ed or her connection with Ed um, does predate uh, Beck's relationship with Ed and um, Ed and Izzy work together. So there's that, there is that dynamic, but I think it sort of speaks to the main issue at the heart of Beck and Izzy's friendship, which is one of possession. Neither of them is really allowed to have anything of their own. You see Beck sort of spends Christmas with Rich and Izzy and their daughter Tilly. And, you know, she's very much encroaching on their family time. And then in return, Izzy is very much inserting herself into the relationship with Ed through that um, workplace connection. But she also gives Ed some advice, which perhaps uh, interferes with uh, Beck's relationship with Ed. This is true. Um, I think Izzy's a very interesting character because... I think she probably would genuinely see herself as a good friend trying to help. I don't think she's particularly self-aware. And I think the advice that she gives Ed to an extent is she believes to help Beck, but she also has her own agenda and um, just can't help putting that first. Have these men become pawns in a much larger game? How do you see it? Yes. Yes, I think they have. Um, I think um, I really wanted to write a book where instead of a romantic relationship um, at the forefront, it was a, a female friendship. Um, and I think there are quite a few books out there about sort of uh, negative relationships between men and women, romantic um, entanglements where they're sort of gaslighting and all that sort of stuff. And I wanted to um, transpose that into a female friendship and that idea that your friend doesn't want the best for you. Um, and that to me is the sort of central feature of, of the book. And I think possibly I have to know my audience here, but I think there is a real complexity to female relationships that might not be there in the male counterparts. So yes, I think the, um, the men are the, um, the pawns in this, um, women on top. Now to add to this mix, we have Beck's brother, Rob, and his celebrity partner, Sydney Scott. Beck is a writer for a magazine and an interview with Sydney would help her career but confidential information is revealed and Izzy is implicated. So yes, the toxicity of the relationship resulted in Beck giving up confidences. Yes, and I think that those kind of dynamics, sometimes our friends um, get things out of us that we didn't intend to tell them. I think these sort of long-standing relationships, we can slip into these roles and we tell ourselves, I'm not going to say this, I'm not going to do this. And then very quickly, you just, you can't help yourself falling back into those traps. And that's 
exactly what happened. Beck knows she must not tell Izzy what she's discovered. It's almost like she's got a little voice in her head saying, don't tell her, don't tell her, don't tell her. And then she just blurts it out. And, and of course, um, then there's the suggestion that Izzy uses that information to her own advantage. All these individuals then, Rich, Ed, Beck, Rob and Sydney, all have a motive, therefore, for killing Izzy, which is where the book begins with Izzy lying at the base of the stairs. But even Izzy is a suspect. So we have a rather complex situation about who done it. Yes. But also, I think it's it, to me, it wasn't so it wasn't so much who done it, but why done it. As you say, they've all got a motive. Um, but for me, it was sort of creating and examining the motives that was the most interesting part of, of the um, writing process for me. And as I was writing, um, I had um, one person in mind as the who done it. Um, and then right at the end, I changed my mind and um, another person came into the frame. So, yeah, that was quite exciting. Well, yes, all of them, each and every one of them, could have easily done something, gone overboard, reacted, which would have caused Izzy's death. But what it does reveal is that psychological interplay, which sort of grows to a point where it explodes and people are hurt. Exactly. Um, and, and in fact, I think you probably missed one um, one suspect I've had um that, that uh, possibly Tilly, the, the daughter, as you say, um, Izzy does not allow her much um, uh, much really? of a life, really. She's got, a, she's got her on this uh, strict routine and there's not much room for fun in Tilly's life. Um, so there's also the suggestion that possibly she snapped, didn't realise what she was doing. Well, what we do find, and the reader for themselves and the listener are going to actually have to read the book to find out who done it, and we do find out who done it? There are answers there. But what is actually more interesting is the transformation in Beck. She has become her own person, but there's a price she's had to pay for that. Yes. And I think we often are um, released by um, tragedy um, and for better, for worse, um, Beck and Izzy do have this sort of toxic frenemy style relationship but there is love and affection there um, and they are each other's rocks um, so um, the death of Izzy does um, have a profound effect on Beck um, and to some extent maybe it allows her to finally fly and become the person she is when the, um, the shadow that she's grown up in is removed she finally can make some choices of her own but as you say it's, it's a very different um a very different world to the world at the start of the book without Izzy. So the choices that she makes do come at a cost and, and maybe what she chooses isn't quite as glorious as um, she anticipates that it will be. But does she not lose her innocence in the process? Yes, she does. But then we could argue that how much innocence does she have really at the beginning when you sort of after every twist and turn is revealed, um, I think we realised, um, or my intention was that we realised that perhaps both our impression of, of both Beck and Izzy at the start is maybe not quite a true one and the picture is slightly more complex. Um, so Beck perhaps isn't as innocent as um, she uh, makes herself out to be. Interesting, because she's telling the story after all. Well, yes. the novel, 
my best friend's murder to find out who murdered Izzy. Listeners are going to have to get the book. Uh, the author is Polly Phillips, and it's a Simon & Schuster release. So, Polly, thank you for talking with me today. No, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed myself. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.